0: Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button. Don't forget to click the bell for continued notifications. Thank you for tuning in. I don't want this to be a very long episode, though, you know, whenever I say that, usually I end up going for about 40 minutes, but hopefully we'll avoid that today. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about theonomy and the dangers inherent in theonomy to turn the gospel into a social gospel. And it's particularly when uh, theonomy is um, appended to something like uh, post-millennial eschatology that this danger becomes uh, especially um, clear, and I think it's, it's one we all need to be aware of. And I don't mean this in any way to say that you know, if you're a theonomist that you're automatically wrong because this this danger exists. I don't wanna I don't wanna overstate my case, but um, but I do think that it is it is a danger that that exists, it lurks. Uh, and and what I see, and this is anecdotal, but but what I see is that in a lot of uh, theonomic post millennial circles there is a confusion of law and gospel, which is the common thread that runs between you know, someone like James Cone, his social gospel, and the more modern uh, take on uh, theonomic reconstruction. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, of course, what James Cone was trying to do was, was to bring uh, two thinkers together. He really wanted to synthesize uh, the thought of Malcolm X with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he wanted Martin Luther King Jr.'s gospel, so-called, uh, and he wanted to mix that with the identity politics of, of, uh, of Malcolm X. You know, Malcolm X had a very strong uh, Islamo-black identity. And he thought that that was really the sum and makeup of, of uh, his, his substance and purpose. So um, that's, what, that's what Cohn wanted to do. But he wanted to do that with Christianity. And he decided to, to try and synthesize the thought of those two thought leaders Martin Luther King Jr. and and Malcolm X. So, the common thread, though, in in someone like Cohn, uh, with some modern, I think, tendencies in theonomy, is a mixture of law and gospel. It's to say something like uh, the purpose of the gospel is to renew or liberate uh, the natural, the, 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 the pre existent or presently existent natural institutions that we find on the earth. Um, and so what that ends up doing is it is a, it it ends up creating a, a an identity for the gospel, uh, which says that the gospel is gold toward the renewal and redemption of the natural the the presently existing natural institutions of this of this world of the present world, um, and so I, uh, I I think that. When you start to say that and articulate a thought similar to that, um, you you end up conflating law and gospel. Um, law is what governs our civil institutions and the present institutions in this world. It's not the gospel. The gospel is not the law uh, that governs those things. The gospel is the uh, incarnation and sufferings of our Lord. Uh, that is um, that means for us as Christians that we may stand rightly before God, uh, justified, uh, declared righteous, freely, not for anything that's in us, uh, but for everything that's in Jesus Christ. Um, and it really the gospel itself is not the law. All right. So the gospel is not saying do this therefore live. The gospel is saying you live regardless of what you do. You live because of what Christ has done, not because what you have done. And then, of course, the law uh, for those who are in Christ uh, becomes a a guide for the expression of our thankfulness towards God for what he has done, a spirit-wrought thankfulness that uh, spurs us on to, to, uh, to live uh, in a thankful obedience to God for what he has done for us but it in no way justifies us makes us right it is not the mechanism to redeem society or make society right before god so i think those are very uh, important distinctions that need to be made and if they're not made then we end up mixing law and gospel which is the great qualm or error that uh, the galatian church was caught in that paul had to rebuke so strongly and actually said to them that they are that they are sliding away from the true gospel and adopting a false gospel, a different gospel. So we want to avoid adopting a different gospel. So how is it that theonomy bears semblance and even uh, runs the risk of falling into a straight you know kind of social gospel? Well first we need to ask the question what the social what is the social gospel? And uh, the social gospel, uh, occurs whenever uh, whenever um, something, you know, some goal for political or societal change is identified as the true gospel, but really it's just a a labor or a mission, the end or the goal of which is societal change through the imposition of, like, equitable laws by means, largely by means of civil politics, the political institutions that we have in place today is largely seen as the means of kind of getting these laws into position such that we uh, then create a society conducive uh, to, in the case of Christian Reconstruction Theonomy, uh, a society conducive to, uh, to churchly life, uh, a society conducive to Christian, particularly Christian, life. But taken by itself, I don't think that, and, and this becomes apparent when you hear theonomists talk, and it's true about the social gospel movement as well, that there's nothing in their words which are designed to encourage social change. There's nothing distinctly Christian in those terms, usually. Uh, it's usually Christianity, distinctly, distinctly Christian things that are appended to their mission to change society. But if you're just looking at the, the goal to change society, usually you don't have the gospel uh, that that is uh, the the immediate change agent for that, really what you have is an emphasis on biblical law. Uh, I'll give you an example. Take something like um, uh, Gary North's Tools of Dominion. In Gary North's Tools of Dominion, what he says, and this is very early on in the volume, he says this, what must be understood from the very beginning is the following theonomic principle of biblical interpretation? It was with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God in heaven, the gospel, right? That is the gospel. It it was with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ to the right hand of God in heaven that the entire world was placed historically under the full requirements of biblical law. So it's it's through the gospel, what what we usually assume is the form and substance of the gospel, that the world is now subjected to the requirements of biblical law. Now, of course, we ask the question, what is biblical law? What are you talking about? And he goes on. He says, For the cre- from the creation, God placed the work of the law in the hearts of all men. Romans 2, 14 through 15. God later made a covenant with Noah, and this covenant necessarily involved law as a tool of dominion. Genesis 9, 1 through 17. He made a covenant with Israel, and he gave laws to Israel that all nations would recognize as being holy and just. Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. And then he says this, But it was with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ that biblical law burst the old covenant wineskin of national Israel, in other words, it, it, it burst forth beyond the bounds of national political Israel and flowed judicially, he says, across all nations. So the judicial law that Israel was beholden to under the old covenant now with the new covenant um, is is international. It's global. And he goes on, he says, it was not the ministry of Moses that accomplished this. It was the ministry of Jesus Christ. So you actually have a recapitulation of the covenant of works in the Mosaic covenant Shoved, smuggled into the new covenant that that now uh, doesn't just have to do with national political Israel, but uh, is global, is international, such that national political Israel becomes the foil or the template or the pattern for the world. Um, most Christians historically would say that you know the the covenant of the, the Mosaic covenant was a, a republication of the covenant of works given in the garden, yet for a different end. The covenant of works given in the garden uh, from God to Adam uh, had a promise of life annexed to it, given the condition of Adam's obedience to God, which we know how that all ended. But the covenant of works revealed to Moses and uh, Israel in Exodus um, was given not so that they could obtain or earn life, that was impossible, it was given rather to point them to their desperation and their explicit need for someone who could fulfill the law in their place, namely Jesus Christ, that brazen serpent, right? I think about the typology and the brazen serpent. And Moses holds it up, and the people are healed by virtue of casting their vision upon it. Um, so, uh, so I think when, when, when you read something like what North has here, uh, you, are, you are reading, uh, if not an explicit mixture or confusion of law and gospel, definitely an implicit one. Now, let, let's switch over to some things that James Cone said. James Cone uh, is popular in uh, the current social justice movement, critical race theory, intersectionality. Um, there are uh, professors uh, that have been charged with uh, teaching Cone's uh, social gospel at Southern uh, uh, I think Southern Seminary as well as uh, southeastern um, I can't I think um, I can't Jarvis Williams is one of them I think he's at Southern and um, uh, and I and then I think uh, Walter Strickland is another Walter Strickland actually explicitly who's a kind of a critical race theorist proponent explicitly affirms the need to teach conian, social gospel ethics, um, and I think he's at Southeastern. I could be wrong about that. Um, but anyway, uh, some of the things that, that Cohn says is very similar. By the way, Gary North uh, wrote a book that's called Liberating um, Planet Earth, and so there's kind of a liberation uh, theology that exists even in, even in North's work. Um, liberation, he says, the world longs for this, page 17 of that volume, the world longs for it, not just mankind, the whole world. Uh, there have been a lot of liberation movements throughout history, but only one has the power to deliver men from bondage Christianity. Now, we have to remember that North is articulating, with, articulating this within the context of a broader theonomic framework that applies globally To all nations, it doesn't necessarily just uh, apply to those who have, by faith, received the articles of the faith and are therefore Christians. This is a this is something that is intended to liberate the planet. Like it says, Uh, it's something that is is uh, is intended to uh, create societal change. And it's the it's the imposition and the proclamation and the preaching of the law that affects that change. And of course, the gospel is said to be the change agent. But in the final analysis, as we've just seen with North's own words, um, actually the change agent is the law as it comes through the gospel. It's very confusing, um, but uh, but it's but it's there anyway. Some things that um, uh, that James Cone says. Um, Sticking with the theme of liberation, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, a very famous volume by James Cone, page 155 in that book, he says the Christian gospel is God's message of liberation in an unredeemed and tortured world. Now, interestingly enough, James Cone... Conceives conceives as policy change and legislation as a means for affecting this liberation, and I think North wouldn't be too far off from that. That legislation, the wind behind the sails of the legislation for both Cohn and Gary North would be the gospel, right? But in the final analysis, it's the legislation that that acts as the change agent change agent for society at large. Um. Uh, other things that uh, that Cohn says uh, black theology and Black Power, a book uh, pages 64 through 65 he says in Jesus is embodied God's kingdom in which men are liberated. Now let's read let's go back to North's words, right? So, so James Cone says, in Jesus is embodied God's kingdom in which men are liberated. James Cone says, or, or Gary, excuse me, Gary North says, but it was with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ that biblical law burst the old covenant wineskin of national Israel and flowed judicially across all nations, right? And of course, this biblical law is the liberating change, change agent for society. Cone is saying something very similar in black theology and black power. Cone goes on, he says, he is, as Paul says, the new Adam who has done for man what man could not do for himself. Again, this didn't come through Moses. This came from Jesus, as North says, his death and resurrection, Cone says, mean that the decisive battle has been fought and won, and man no longer has to be a slave to principalities and powers. Now, again, Cone conceives all of this as being instrumentally affected by the law, by the law. Okay. Now he's going to view biblical law in a way that diverges from Gary North. Obviously, all right. James Cone is a theological liberal, all right. Uh, but, but, uh, the 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 instrumental factor here is the law. Now we know that you're going to have two different conceptions of it, but the law is the instrument of societal change. The law specifically, as it comes through both Cone and North, I, I believe, would agree on this, as it comes through Jesus, right? As it comes through the and in the gospel. And so it's the gospel that ends up affecting social change, social gospel. That's how I think theonomy and the social gospel can actually get on the same page if those of you I'm brethren, I'm not. I'm not trying to dig you guys. I'm just trying to give you something to think about and be ca- be cautious of. Those of you who hold to that position, you need to be careful about that. I think. Um, and we all have things that we need to be careful about in all of our in all of our theologies, right? Uh, um, so, for example, all of us are Christians. All of us believe in the gospel of free grace. Well, we have to be careful that in our affirmation of the gospel of free grace, that we don't fall into some kind of antinomianism, and so so don't take this. Caution as a slight to you personally uh, or your position. I don't want to come off as if I'm trying to dig my heels into your sides. I'm just, I'm just saying that I think this is something that that you need to have your finger on. It's something that should be on your radar as a uh, as a potential danger. Um, one other thing I would like to do is. Um, uh, I I don't know if I want to do it or not. It's a little bit beyond the scope of of the video here and what I had t- intended to do. It sounded good at the time, but I think it's too broad. Oh, what the heck? We'll do it anyway. So again, I don't have it pulled up here on the screen. Um, but if you if you go in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter nine, I think Paul actually takes a. <clears throat> A um, judicial law from uh, Deuteronomy 25, and he applies it. Now he doesn't apply it to. Uh, he doesn't apply it in a theonomic way. He applies it to the church and to the faithful, uh, and he applies it specifically within the context of uh, of the preaching of the gospel and the life of the church, the practical living of Christians. Um, and uh, and so and I think it teaches us a great deal of how we derive meaning from the Old Covenant law, even though we're not under the Old Covenant anymore um, per Hebrews 8:13 and elsewhere, but there it still means something to us. It doesn't mean I don't believe what Gary North would say that it means that its general equity is useful for societal structure uh, and and governmental structure. I don't think that that's that that's what it's useful for. In fact, I think it's it's it applies to the church, uh, and it applies in a certain way in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, because all Scripture we know points to him. So if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in uh, verse 8, uh, well, actually beginning in verse 3, uh, we read, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Who does not enjoy the fruits of his own labor, he's saying. Verse 8, he says, Do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now that is from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And then he asks this, Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? Christians at Corinth, at, at Corinth ministers of the gospel, the apostles, or does he say it altogether for our sakes for our sakes no doubt this is written that he who ploughs should plough in hope and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope if we have shown if we have sown spiritual things for you is it a great thing if we reap your material things if others are partakers of this right over you are we not even more so the sowing is is here spiritual and then he's saying that we should be able to live Uh, and provide for our physical welfare, uh, given our spiritual labors in your lives. And then he continues on, Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Verse 13, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So, does Paul here apply this judicial law to the state? Or does it? he, does he apply it to the ministers of the gospel within the context of the church? Obviously, he's applying it to the ministers of the gospel within the context of the church. Um, and really, that's where it stays. He doesn't move beyond that. He's writing to the church here. He's he's He's... He's engaging the church here, and I think I think it's important for us to understand that. That really, when you see the use of old covenant laws, judicial laws uh, like this one from Deuteronomy twenty-five, four, when you see those laws employed and used in the new covenant, it's not uh, they're not used as an effort to affect societal change. They're not even used as examples of the instrumental means by which we affect societal change or structure our society at large. Rather, these instances of biblical law which appear recapitulated in the New Covenant are always used uh, as a means to inform the faith of the Church in light of the Incarnation, Sufferings, and Glories of our Lord. So, Hopefully that's helpful as well. There's, there's much more that can be said here. But what what I think it, it all comes down to is this. We need to maintain, ferociously maintain, a distinction between law and gospel. What is the gospel? It's not the law. The gospel is the free grace of God given to the people of God for the redemption of the people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law is the is the is what informs our obedience. And there are three uses of the law, right? Uh, There is the condemnatory use. We look at the law and we realize that we fall short of the law and thus are condemned by God for our sin. Uh, So the law condemns us. It has no power to redeem us. Uh, There is the informatory use, where uh, the law of God is, um, is uh, is an instruction for the Christian that within the context of regeneration and conversion is now, you know, our, um, uh, is, is, is now our, um, what am I trying to say? It's our instruction. It's our, it's our, um, it's our information. It's our, it's our, it's our law in terms of how we are to live as Christians. Um, but again, that o- that applies to Christians specifically. And then there's a third use of the law and it applies to society, but it, impli- it, it, it applies to society in terms of natural law, not in terms of specially revealed positive laws that existed under the Old Covenant and were for the Old Covenant people of God alone. And so when we're looking at the three uses of the law, uh, usually what that refers to is it refers to the natural or the moral law of God. Um, it condemns us. Uh, it shows us how to live. And it is, uh, it is a law that uh, society at large is responsible to because it's the natural law. Um, but it's important that we don't confuse uh, the second use with the third use. Um, we can't confuse the second use with the third use because society is not being redeemed through its application of the natural law. Uh, governments are not being redeemed and their, pe- their subjects are not being redeemed through the application of the natural law, right? Whereas when we, when we look at Christians, uh, Christians are redeemed by the free grace of God in the gospel and then are joyously sent uh, back to the law, some would say, to, to live lives of thanksgiving. And the law shows us how to live lives of thanksgiving for what God has done for us. Um, and so we don't want to, to mix those two things up. And a lot of times what you'll hear, I think, well-intending theonomists, you'll hear well-intending theonomists say, well, society is obviously not going to keep the law of God uh, unless they have been changed by the gospel. True enough. I mean, if you have a whole society that has been changed by the gospel of God's grace, well, then that society is going to look very different. Uh, And we can pray for societies like that. We can pray that society is changed by the gospel, right? Uh, but we also have to remember that as we preach the gospel, we, we shouldn't understand the gospel as a means for societal change. The gospel isn't a means for current societal change. The gospel is the means of the building of a heavenly institution, namely the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Um, and and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is distinct from earthly natural institutions in this world. Um now, what I was going to say earlier, and I kind of cut myself off, is that uh, as, we, as we think about the gospel, and as we think about the gospel in society, we have to understand uh, that the gospel is, uh, is something that is, uh, is not—again, it's, it's, I, said, I said this earlier, and I, and I want to say it again at the risk of being too repetitive—but uh, the gospel is not the law. And so the gospel is not, going to, uh, is not going to structure civil institutions, which by definition of being civil institutions are structured according to law. All right? And so when you get into the Gary Norths of the Theonomic Reconstructionist movement uh, and people like him, uh, you, you start to realize, well, these two things, law and gospel, are really coming together and are being cast as the change agent of society. Uh, And when you get in uh, on a very practical level, uh, what you see among theonomic reconstructionists is is engagement with the political sphere, not necessarily uh, is it the case that they're just preaching the gospel of free grace through the personal work of Jesus Christ. It's more or less saying the Bible says this, this is how we ought to order things, therefore society ought to be shaped this way, because God's word says it. Well, that's still... Just a preaching of the law uh, to society, and uh, and that's not the gospel, right? And and again, that happens at a very practical level. I know theoretically, the theonomist wants to say, well, it's the gospel that changes society, but but practically, what often we see is that it's a preaching of the uh, of the law from the scriptures that is expected to change the political landscape, and the law has no power to change anything. So. Uh, we have to maintain the distinction between uh, between law and gospel. I think we have to maintain that distinction ferociously. Anyway, hopefully this was a helpful episode. I know it was just kind of a lot of things thrown up on the wall to see what sticks, um, but I hope I hope it was helpful. Um, I, I know it was a, a little bit drawn out and and complex, but uh, remember the distinction between law and gospel. Remember that there is a danger among. Theonomic Reconstruction is to slip into a social gospel. And here's, here's what I was going to say earlier, but I forgot. Theonomic Reconstruction, the danger with it, is that it just becomes a conservative version of the social gospel. The social gospel has been, for years, associated with theological liberalism and uh, a, a kind of liberal push to change society, a theological liberal push to change society. However, I think what we have in some corners of theonomic reconstruction, I don't want to identify all of my brothers who hold to this position uh, with this, but I think in some corners of it, we have just the conservative version of that. So it's the same principles. Uh, It's the same, it's the same base liberating the world through the resurrected Christ um that affects this societal change it's that same kind of substrata that runs both the liberal social gospel and the conservative social gospel and theonomic reconstruction is just a representation in some in some ways and in some senses in some corners of a conservative version of what of what the of what the social gospel theological liberals have done um, and so, again, guys, uh, it's, just a, it's just a general caution. Um, I don't mean to, to try and tear you down or to insult you. It's just uh, you know, some things that I have observed and I hope, for, are, hope are helpful uh, to you in the long run. God bless you guys. Don't forget to subscribe to the channel uh, and share this if it was helpful. Again, we're, we podcast as well. This isn't just a video, so you can find me on anchor.fm. Podcast Addict, Spotify, and, of course, iTunes.